So who are we canceling today? Well, I run this political conference and we scheduled this guy and he said just the worst things. So we've got to cancel him. We've got to get rid of him. Are you talking about the conservative political action conference? Yeah, America Uncancelled! So your tagline is America Uncancelled, but you just cancelled somebody for their views? How does that make sense? Freedom! <laughs> what? Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Burns. And I'm Oliver Ash Klein. And you're listening to Cancel Me Daddy. The show where we take a closer look at all the panic around cancel culture. With thoughtful analysis. And verbal shitposting. So, Caitlin, before we get to the show, I am going to make you blush by reading a really accurate and true and wonderful tweet from one of our listeners. Lior Maleficent wrote, To be honest, I think Caitlin is one of the best journalists of our times, and I would support anything she does. But the new Cancel Me Daddy podcast is also fun and witty, and you should definitely listen to it if you haven't already. I don't even know how to respond to that. Uh, That just blows my mind. I'm just some lady in my apartment that makes a lot of phone calls and I guess writes nice things. But thank you so much for the kind comments. Caitlin has a very hard time accepting a compliment, even though she's really talented and amazing. And so you should say more nice things about her and our show on social media. And if you do that or talk us up in a review on Apple Podcasts, we might read it on the show. And those reviews really do help. And we really, really appreciate them. Now, for today's show, we're going to delve into the least surprising thing in the world. Hypocrisy from Republicans. Again? Christ. Well, you know, a speaker was, quote, canceled from speaking at the Conservative Political Action Conference, even though the theme of the conference is America uncancelled. We can't not cover that. That's literally, you cannot make this shit up. Like, these (laughs) people are just beyond parody. Um, I just, I can't even... And we're also going to talk about how a white woman angrily quit her job at Smith College and cried cancel culture because she was asked not to rap. And how that woman is now a new right-wing darling benefiting from the cancel culture grift economy. Whew, okay, let's get canceling, Caitlin. Let's do this. We, of course, have to talk about CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, because the theme this year was America Uncancelled. Yeah, America Uncancelled. Oh, these people have lost their minds. Uh, For those of you who don't know, CPAC is probably the largest and most influential conservative political conference um, that's held every year in the U.S. And former President Trump has spoken at it, I think, every year going back four or five years. I actually covered the conference um, a couple of years ago when I was working for rewire.news. I didn't see the president speak that time, but I did see Mike Pence speak. Um, and actually a quick aside, my one memory from that conference is sitting on the floor in front of the media section in the corner, surrounded by like these bros in suits because the, the auditorium was packed in the hotel conference room and I was sitting on the floor in like my skirt suit, <laughs> like trying to listen to what was being said and I couldn't hear a thing. 
So I actually had like my earbuds in and I was watching it on my computer. I'm like, why am I even here? <laughs> so that's my lasting CPAC impression. But this year, of course, because the Republican Party doesn't have any policy ideas to run with, their theme was America Uncancelled. And the most ironic part is before the conference even started, they canceled one of their speakers over offensive speech, which is the thing that they always complain about. What? Caitlin, what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, I would have canceled the speaker too, but I would have canceled a bunch of their speakers. That's besides the point. But there's this, this guy named Young Pharaoh. He's a hip hop artist. He's deeply anti-Semitic. Media Matters did a whole piece on him last week where, you know, they they dug up a history of past statements about Jewish people talking about how Judaism is a quote, a complete lie and referring to Jewish people as thieving fake Jews. Yikes. Just a whole mess, right? And it's something that their prep team probably should have caught before booking him at the conference, but they canceled his appearance. Uh, at the America Uncancelled conference. So CPAC organizers said last Monday, we have just learned that someone we invited to CPAC has expressed reprehensible views that have no home with our conference or our organization. The individual will not be participating at our conference. So, you know, it started with a bang. The America Uncancelled conference started with a cancellation and you just can't... (laughs) Like the screenwriters are really messing with us at this point, I think. So, you know, what Young Pharaoh said is totally horrid, totally reprehensible. Oh, yeah. And the statements go much deeper beyond what I just said. But you get the gist of it. I don't want to go into repeating all the horrific things that he said. Are the things that he said worse than what other speakers at CPAC have said? I think that's a fair question. And I don't know the answer to it. Um, I think that Young Pharaoh's comments go beyond like what your average Republican politician says, right? Like there are Republican elected officials who are deeply anti-Semitic, who have made really horrid remarks. I don't think they've said anything this bad. If they have, it's been few and far between. Gotcha. But yeah, (laughs) the uncanceled conference started with a cancellation. Yeah, I, I just, I don't understand how they can be like, oh, cancel culture is so bad. We shouldn't have cancel culture. It's out of control. And then they cancel the a speaker. Like they're doing the exact same thing that they're complaining about. Yeah, it really like unveils the sort of bullshit hypocrisy at play here where like they're always saying the response to hate speech or whatever is more speech, not limited speech. And yet here they are you know, doing the exact thing that they're preaching against. You know, I'm going to sit here and say, yeah, they should have canceled the guy. But also, I think a lot of people should have their appearances canceled after they say really heinous things. And they don't think so. And they've built an entire political plank, you know, a political argument out of this. They've made it the undergirding of their entire political party. So I think it's just a signal that they realize they're just engaging in cultural war bullshit rather than actual meaningful policy that has any relevance whatsoever in any American's lives. Like there's no world where young Pharaoh speaking at CPAC is good for anybody anywhere. I I think that we can say the same thing about Donald Trump. Yeah. Are we going there already? I, I just went there. Yeah. Okay. So Donald Trump, 
the man with no Twitter account <laughs> resurged onto the national stage at CPAC, making his first public speech there. And he hit all of the usual themes. You know, the election was rigged, the election was stolen, blah, 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 blah. I think the only new thing that he had, which is particularly concerning for you and I, because this is, you know, our livelihoods and our lives, is he did go on an anti-trans rant in his speech. (sighs) But he also made this weird comparison between trans women and women's sports and cancel culture, where he was like, they're trying to cancel women's sports by allowing, quote, biological males to compete in it. And it's just like the cancel culture and the rest of society. And I'm like, dude, come on. Like, this is so cringe. Like, you need to exit stage left. So Trump is back with, you know, an added flavor of transphobia, which is always fun and exciting for us. You know, it's really interesting. I covered his entire presidency as a journalist. He never really personally talked about trans issues, despite the fact that his administration was almost constantly at work undermining trans rights. So there are actually only like two or three times that he specifically mentioned trans people. One, of course, was the um, military ban on Twitter, the military ban tweets. Yep. And then he had another quick thing when he was going to his presidential chopper on the White House lawn to like take off somewhere. He's doing like a little press gaggle and he mentioned trans people, but nobody could really hear him because the helicopter blades are going. <laughs> mm-hmm. And besides that, he didn't really mention it like During his first campaign, he said that, you know, Caitlyn Jenner would be welcome to pee in the ladies' room in Trump Tower, which, of course, is New York State law. So it's, like, not shocking there. Um, But this is the first time he's really leaned into, you know, the, the transphobia angle. Where do you think that shift is coming from? So I think that this has been an internal struggle in Trump land for a while. There's actually a really interesting piece done really late in the election cycle by Politico magazine that really broke down the Trump struggle with how to incorporate trans rights, right? Like there were two camps of people and in one camp you had like Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner who were like, I don't think trans rights are that big of a deal. I don't think people care. I don't think it'll win you any votes. And they had another camp of people which included Don Jr. and like there was this one political activist who has been like made a name and becoming like an anti-trans. Um, he doesn't personally advocate that much, but he runs organizations that run ads in swing states about trans issues, particularly mm-hmm. trans women and women's sports. And the article did a great job like explaining how like there were two pressures on Trump on whether he should go after trans people or not. And the side in favor of going after trans rights really believed that it would help him in the election. So when I see Trump in his first public appearance after his presidency going after trans people, my immediate thought is he wants to run again and he thinks this is an issue that can win him voters. That's what I saw. That's yikes. That that makes me a little, <laughs> a little stressed out and nervous. But to bring it full circle, back to cancel culture, because that is the point of our show. <laughs> um, if you remember during the election, like Trump talked about cancel culture in almost all of his stump speeches. Like he really made it a central part of his campaign and he lost on it. Another interesting thing that happened at CPAC this weekend is they actually did a straw poll for president among CPAC attendees. This is a thing that they do every single time before 
presidential campaigns. And they did two polls. They did one with Trump and one without Trump. And how'd those go? So the one with Trump, Trump won, but he only had like 55% support, which is really low because CPAC attendees are like his core, core audience. Like they brought out a fucking golden statue of Trump and wheeled his ass around the conference. Like it was what gaudy. Yeah. Did you not see this? No. <laughs> okay. Wait a second. Let me send this to you. Oh, that is heinous. He's got like American flag shorts on and like sandals and the proportions are all wrong. His head's huge. Yeah, he's got a magic wand. Oh my God, this is this is so heinous. <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, um, so this is like his core base, but he still only got like 55% of the vote. Not great. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who's also kind of a jackass, got like 21% of the vote. He came in second. And DeSantis won the vote in the non-Trump poll. But the point I wanted to make here is our favorite anti-cancel culture Republicans all sucked in this poll. (laughs) So like Josh Hawley registered so low, like he doesn't even show up in the news reports. (laughs) He was done like the three or four percent range tops. Um, and Ted Cruz came in at like seven percent. And Ted Cruz won in 2016. Like, this is an audience that knows and cares for Ted Cruz. Ooh. This is the America Uncanceled Conference. And the biggest anti-cancel culture voices in Congress can't even get straw poll votes from these people. Like, I question whether cancel culture is a viable campaign issue at all. Like, I actually don't think people care about this outside of like trying to get yourself on Fox News. Yeah, I was thinking about this and the Republican Party has always been this marriage of convenience between the far right in terms of culture and big business, right? And I think that, you know, as the Republicans have gone deeper and deeper into fascism, more and more overtly racist, that marriage has not been as solid. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that you have the far right losing kind of the more buttoned up moderate Republicans who are more in the business sides of things. Like, I think they're going too far for that. And so that marriage of convenience is starting to fracture and decay. And so instead of saying like, oh, we need to stop saying all these hateful things, they're trying to make it about free speech. They're shifting the conversation to be about oh, cancel culture, we're being censored, like freedom of speech, America, yeah. And I think that that's one of the reasons that we're seeing the shift to this kind of focus and obsession with cancel culture. Yeah, I think so. I think I've written that actually in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not exactly, because I think I just called it culture war rather than cancel culture. But yeah, I think you're you're 100% right. But yeah, people aren't buying it. Like it's not successful. And so I guess the question is, if they say it enough, right, if they make it enough of the discourse, will people start to buy it? Or will it continue to not really resonate with people? I think there's another dynamic here, too, that we might be missing with it. And I think that Mm -hmm. it's when Republicans are quote unquote, canceled, And we've talked about this before. It's almost like a status symbol for them. It's like a currency, Mm -hmm. but it also turns them into victims, right? A lot of people out there 
who lean left look at Republicans and think they're the oppressors. And I think in many cases, rightly so, most cases probably. But if you get canceled, all of a sudden you can flip that dynamic and Republicans become the victims and the, the actual victims become the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. And you can like darvo your way through this. But I do think that ultimately ends up costing them at the ballot box because who wants to vote for a victim for a leadership position? They want to vote for leaders, not victims, right? Hmm. I don't think it's a position of strength for Republicans that they think it is. That's really interesting. I mean, I'm trying to think if there have been any campaigns where, you know, the Republican, like, running against a marginalized person has been really hateful and, like, the marginalized person has really highlighted that and ta- like that that's not how those races usually go the person who is being attacked is like okay well i'm just going to focus on positive things and like maybe highlight some of the terrible things they're saying but like they're often not focusing on the way they're being attacked i think that there's ways to deflect it i think danica rome's first campaign for virginia delegate did a really good job with that because like Mm-hmm. she would take the most heinous transphobic attacks against her and just like spin them back so hard uh, on, on the incumbent she was running against. Like um, he'd be like, Oh, she, you know, she's going to pay for your kids to get castrated or something. And she goes, um, well, you know, this guy hasn't fixed the roads in 40 fucking years. Like, <laughs> Like, he's so concerned with what's in my pants, but I want to fix your roads. Like, there's ways to, like, spin it in a way that um, you don't really have to answer for the attacks, but you can just be like, this guy is so out of touch. Like, you can't vote for him. (laughs) Yeah, I was actually, when I was, like, talking about that, I was thinking of Danica's campaign and how, like, she just didn't engage with any of that, even though her opponent was being, like, the most horrible transphobic person ever and like look at what virginia has done since then they've passed an lgbt equality bill there they passed a trans panic uh defense ban in the state they can't use the trans panic defense in virginia anymore you know she's made and she's made a real difference for lgbt people's lives but she's also you know doing what her constituents want so fixing route what what route yeah, is it she's 28, always talking about 28. 28 route 28 y'all yeah. <laughs> um, I've interviewed her probably, oh gosh, over a half dozen times now. And I've learned that you have to get through the Route 28 talk before she'll actually answer the question you ask her. <laughs> so sometimes you have to ask the same question in different ways two or three times before she actually answers it and doesn't talk about Route 28. It's really funny. Um, but I think we're getting sidetracked here. <laughs> well, I just think if I could put myself in the Republican shoes for a second. I think if I got quote unquote canceled, the way to project strength in that situation is to be like, oh, you don't like it? Fuck you. Mm. Like, oh, you don't like what I said? I'm not talking to you. I think that's more of a position of strength than going, oh, no, they canceled me. Oh, they can- I can't speak at this place or my book got pulled and I'm a victim on Fox News and the left is out of control. I don't think that's a little position of strength, to be honest with you. I think it's kind of wussy to be honest with you um and maybe that's just not maybe i'll get canceled for saying this but that's just where i'm coming from i don't think it's strong i don't think it's appealing to anybody with like any sense of normalcy 
I think it makes them look like peons, to be honest with you. <laughs> I think there's a whole nother conversation about kind of our cultural expectations around leadership and what a leadership looks like. But regardless of whether those cultural expectations make sense and are grounded, like they are the expectations we have, right? And that's right. how people respond to Republicans, like throwing a temper tantrum and crying about cancel culture. If I was the fucking senator from Texas, I'd just be like, fuck you, I'm the senator from Texas. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> like, am I wrong? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully cancel culture will be the downfall of the Republicans. If you have strong feelings about what I'm saying, like tweet at the show so that we know. Because like, I... I it want to know if I'm on an island with this. I think it looks just really weak. Um, so yeah, it was really like a wild weekend at CPAC. And you had Josh Holloway up there and he gets up and he gives this speech and he goes through all of the ways that he's been canceled by the left. And he was like, oh, they tried to do this. They tried to do that. But I'm here speaking to you. And it was like 40 people in the crowd. Like... <laughs> Wait, wait, he went through a list of all the all the ways that he'd yeah. been really hurt by the cancel yeah. culture. Yeah, yeah. He was like, okay. they, they pulled my book and they did this and they did that. And I'm like, okay, man, like, this is your stump speech. No wonder you got 3% in the straw poll. Come on, bro. <laughs> wait, and for people in the straw poll, are those people who actually want to run for president? I think they just picked, like, the 20 most high-profile names. So gotcha. it was like... Trump and DeSantis and like Tom Cotton, who's a senator from Arkansas. They had Ted Cruz. They had a bunch of people. I think even like Jim Jordan was in there, which like God save us all if he runs for president. Speaking of Jim Jordan, by the way, did you see that he's calling for congressional investigations into cancel culture? Um, I don't think my eyes roll far enough back in my head. <laughs> I am making the very first cancel me daddy promise that if they have congressional hearings on cancel culture i will cover it specifically for the podcast well i think that would be great podcast content i don't want my brain to be filled with that so please lord let that not happen no, but no, no, if no. it does we will be there for you i want it to happen <laughs> for the sake of the content agree to disagree caitlin i still love you not gonna cancel you can you imagine who they'd call for like a witness like get like fucking glenn greenwald up there or something <laughs> What if they called the cancel daddy? Um, I will. I I will come. I will. I will let them know <laughs> that they're full of shit, and the cancel daddy will come and cancel them all and end the hearing. But not after we get a lot of good content for the show first. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> If you know anything about trans stories in the media, and if you're listening to our show, there's a pretty good chance you already do, is that they're often poorly told and not produced with trans audiences in mind. If you're frustrated by that like we are, you should check out Queersplaining. Each week, host and producer Callie Wright, who's really cool, tells a story from their own life or the lives of other queer and trans folks. You'll hear stories about friendship, family, mental health, pain, and maybe most importantly, queer and trans joy. I stand for that. Some of their recent episodes deal with being joyously bad at things, the monotony of life under COVID, grappling with medical gatekeeping, and trans representation in the Star Trek universe. I also highly recommend going back a little bit and checking out the episode where Callie goes to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show for the first time. I think I remember crying. 
It was a really good and emotional episode that I think you'll really appreciate. Listen and subscribe to Queer Explaining wherever you listen to podcasts. This next one irritates me so much, Caitlin. I was reading about this the other day, and it seems pretty bad, but can you just refresh my memory on the details? Yeah. Okay, so there's this woman named Jodie Shaw, and she used to work at Smith College. That's in Northampton, Massachusetts, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I used to live near there. Actually, I went to UMass, which is in the next town over. Oh, I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah. So what's up with Jodie Shaw? Yeah. So her resignation from Smith College has gotten a lot of press and she's become kind of this like cancel culture hero or something. And basically she's a white woman who's complaining about being discriminated against due to her race, which is just nonsensical. And she literally quit her job citing a racially hostile environment that left her, quote, physically and mentally debilitated. I'm not sure I'm following even now, but can you give me an example of what she meant by racially hostile environment? I mean, that's fair. It doesn't make any sense. But basically, so one of Jody's biggest gripes is that she was told that she couldn't rap during a library orientation program because it could be viewed as cultural appropriation. And a lot of people on the internet have made the great joke that her supervisor who asked her not to rap saved her from humiliating herself in front of a <laughs> bunch of students. Thank you for everyone who's made that joke. It's great. And then the other thing, which Jody described as, quote, the last straw, is that she was apparently on this staff retreat on racial issues. And staffs were asked questions about their race and racial identity, stuff that's pretty typical with some of these diversity and equity trainings. And Jody refused to talk about that. And then later in the training, the facilitator said that a white person's discomfort with discussing their race is a symptom of white fragility. And Jody described that situation as her being shamed and humiliated in front of all of her colleagues. Mm-hmm. So after that, she filed a complaint, which she says wasn't taken seriously, which I think that's really fair. It sounds at least to me like Jody was the one creating the racially hostile environment. Uh, I was watching one of her YouTube videos about this, and she complains about the college asking her to, quote, admit to her white privilege and, quote, work on her so-called implicit bias as a condition of her continued employment. And, you know, if you don't believe in white privilege, if you don't believe in implicit bias, you're probably the one creating the hostile work environment. So I just think it's, like, really reasonable that the college was like, yeah, this isn't a serious complaint. Yeah, I think it's important, too, because, like, the white privilege discourse and the implicit bias discourse are both sort of outgrowths of what we have called the cancel culture grift economy. Well, there are journalists on Twitter and academics on Twitter who have dedicated their whole lives to like disproving quote um, implicit bias or tearing down the idea of white privilege. They're always white people almost universally and it's a whole thing. And like they, they play into this sort of attitude among a lot of white people where they're like, I'm not responsible for racism because I don't have a racist bone in my body, right? Yeah, and I think this is what's going on here. Like, there are certain buzzwords that will get attention in the right places if you scream loud enough. And it sounds to me that's kind of what's going on here. But you were kind of reluctant to talk about the story in our episode when we first started talking about, you know, what we wanted to talk about this week. But what changed your mind on that? Honestly, how much media attention this is getting 
is what changed my mind about this. I don't think this is a story. The, quote, story here is a white woman is refusing to engage with the realities of race and privilege. Like, this is just a white woman throwing a temper tantrum about not wanting to engage with reality. And it's wild to me that this is getting so much traction. Yeah, it's been picked up by the New York Times, Rolling Stone, the Boston Globe, Jezebel, and of course, the right-wing media machine. Yeah, and as we've seen with other folks, Jody's using this to raise her profile, get some money, stuff like that. What do you mean? Well, she's raised $250,000, um, and that's for her living expenses and legal fees that are related to the discrimination suit that she's planning to file. And then she does say that any extra money will go to helping others in similar situations, which, okay, whatever. And then she's also being treated as a cancel culture hero by the right-wing media. Um, And she's gotten about 13,000 followers on Twitter from that. Her YouTube page now has a sizable following, which is really shocking because her videos are so bad, Caitlin. They're just excruciating to watch. But anyway, she yeah, she's just cashing in on the cancel culture grift economy. This is just mystifying to me that, that this keeps happening over and over and over again. Like, who are these people that are giving stacks of cash to some white person who felt offended that one time? Like, that's what I want to know. <laughs> like, But, you know, this does bring up an interesting discussion, especially for shows like ours. Like, our show is designed to sort of bring these situations to light and offer a new perspective to them. But how do we balance, like, the need to, like, give clear-eyed analysis of a situation or a story that maybe really shouldn't get so much press? How do we balance that? Like, I don't... That's a question for media people that I don't know that I can answer. Like, what what is the standard here? Is it when a bunch of people start talking about something on the internet, that's when it deserves media coverage. I'm not sure that serves us well over the long term, does it? No, I don't think so. And that's something that I struggle with a little bit too. But I think that like, I don't think this should have become a story. But, you know, the right wing press is telling that story, right? And they've really lifted and elevated that story. And so... You know, some of the coverage has been like making fun of or picking apart the holes in the story like we're doing. And so, you know, I do think that once a story that shouldn't be told gets to a certain point, you know, there needs to be coverage that challenges it. But, yeah, I think that the balance between, you know, covering something that's kind of nonsense that's come up in the cultural conversation and not giving air and more publicity and press to something that's really harmful. Like that's a hard thing to balance and figure out where that line is. Yeah. I think this is a good example of the sort of the, the borderline cases along there. I mean, we're talking about a white woman from Northampton, Massachusetts, you know, Northampton is an overwhelmingly white town. Smith College is an overwhelmingly white school. I used to live in the area. The area, so there's five colleges around Smith that sort of have a cooperative together and they call it the five college, like agreement or whatever. Um, So people often refer to it as the five college area, but it's overwhelmingly white. And I actually went to, I think I went to the most diverse school, which is UMass, which is the big state school, has like 25,000 students. And even that was a predominantly white space. So like, We're talking about somebody who is white, who is like living and working in majority white 
spaces claiming that she's being discriminated against for being white, which doesn't really make sense to me at all. But, you know, you said that you watched some of her videos, but did you glean anything from those? Yeah, the thing that really stuck out to me is she just so genuinely believes the bullshit she's peddling, Caitlin. Mm -hmm. She doesn't believe in white privilege. She genuinely believes that she is being oppressed. Because she wasn't allowed to rap and because she was asked to think about white privilege? Yes. And so, like, the way that she is creating a hostile environment for other people, she believes she exists in an environment that's hostile like that. Like, there's just a level of detachment from reality that kind of boggles my mind. When you think about it's not just this woman, but it's a lot of our country who genuinely hold these views and genuinely think they're being oppressed. Like, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, you know, it strikes me that this is sort of a common pathway into reactionary ideologies, um, because unless I'm mistaken, like Jody was a lifelong liberal. This is actually a very serious problem for, I think, the left in 2021. And that is that I think this is this is a very common pathway to go from left wing to right wing ideology, right? Because this, you know, there's always a pattern with this stuff where you you see something and in your own mind you think you're the victim here, and then the people who agree with you will like love bomb you on social media, they'll offer you all kinds of money, and you're start to, starting to think, well, maybe these people aren't, you know, as awful as I used to think they were, and you start listening to them. And like, this is how like the early, early stages of radicalization online work. Mm -hmm. And I think that we see this also with like the people who are quote unquote canceled. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oftentimes it's not universal, right? But a lot of times like there will be some issue that somebody gets quote unquote canceled over. And quite frequently it's racism or thinking about white privilege or like implicit bias where, you know, this person, they're the main character in their own life. They're thinking, I'm a good person. I can't be any of these evil things. And you have somebody else coming in and saying, well, you know, we get that you're like not a bad person, but like these are common things that, you know, most white people do or think, and we want you to consider it. You think, well, no, that's not me. I'm a good person. I can't be racist. It's not a racist bone in my body. And I think this is sort of the entryway into reactionary thinking. And I think this is what we're seeing in real time here. But this leads back to the previous question I had about, like, how do we tackle this from a media perspective? Because is this one woman resigning, like, newsworthy? I know that, like, the story was kind of broken through Barry Weiss's blog, right? Who's, like, Mm -hmm. one of the main purveyors of the cancel culture grift economy. (laughs) I'm just going to say it. It's true. No lies. (laughs) But... Like, it's kicked off a whole round of media coverage just from this one person's blog. But I'm curious, like, you've taken, I think, a closer look at the situation between the two of us. But what do you think about the media coverage of this so far? Uh, It's really bad, Caitlin. So we're getting headlines like, toxic wokeness taints a campus and causes liberal staffer to resign. And lone whistleblower takes on the woke racists at Smith College. Right. So the headlines are yikes. But a lot of the stories are talking about this event on campus that Jody cites in her resignation letter as the reason the campus has become what she describes as racially hostile. 
because there was a move towards diversity and equity initiatives afterwards and a focus on trying to make the campus a better place for students of color and specifically Black students. And so that event in question that's been referenced in the media coverage involved a janitor calling a campus security officer on a Black student while she was eating lunch. Her name's Umu Kanyute, and the ACLU took her case saying that she was profiled for eating while Black. So the school hired a law firm to conduct an investigation and didn't find any evidence of bias against the student, which honestly isn't surprising. It's really hard to prove bias, but so many of these media stories are using it to say, oh, this didn't happen and all of these DEI initiatives are unnecessary. And the New York Times and like some of these other outlets have dealt in the details about this um, and the investigation and everything. I thought the New York Times piece was pretty detailed. Uh, I was frustrated, though, with how it centered the white people in the story. And I realized that's sort of a result of who is willing to talk to you as a reporter, right? If I call up two different people about an incident that happened and one of them talks to me and the other one doesn't, it's hard to represent the one that doesn't talk to you, right? But I think they could have gotten around this, especially at the New York Times, by speaking with people who have experience being Black on a predominantly white campus. I think that was a a perspective that's left out, right? Because yes, there is this one incident that maybe you can like glean the straight facts from, but you don't know what else this student has experienced on campus. Um, You don't know if there have been like little things that the school's professors have said to this person. You don't know how other students are treating the black students on campus. Like, I think there's a lot of context missing to this. Uh, Speaking for myself, I'm white. I'm not a person of color, but I am trans and I understand how discrimination works and sort of bias. It sounds to me this is like this is an incident of like the straw that broke the camel's back for this student. Yeah. So Umu has spoken to the media when the event mm-hmm. first happened and had like a viral post and has said that this was after kind of a year of discrimination on campus. So you're absolutely right. You know, in the New York Times, they put a lot of emphasis and focus on how Umu wasn't in a place that she was technically supposed to be. I know that when I was a student, I was in like open classrooms I wasn't supposed to be in all the time, right? And no one ever called campus security on me. And I don't think that that's a coincidence that I'm white, right? If Umu had been white, I think the janitor who called campus security might have just been like, hey, what are you doing here? And they would have had a conversation and it would have been over. And so I I don't think that her, you know, being in a place that, quote unquote, she wasn't technically supposed to be is like the gotcha that there wasn't actually any racial bias that some people seem to think that it is. I have a question, actually, about this. We have, you know, all of this analysis about this incident with Umu and the sort of fallout from this. But like, how is this related to Jody Shaw and her resignation? That's the part I'm not connecting, I guess, here in all of this. Yeah, they're not really, besides that they happened on the same campus. And I, I actually think that a lot of the articles really delving into the incident with Umu specifically, they're being framed 
as a black woman crying wolf around racial discrimination. And they're not Mm -hmm. touching on the very real Mm -hmm. and indisputable hostility that black students do face on college campuses. And, And so a lot of these stories are really peddling this narrative that complaints about discrimination and racism are out of control and lead to a hostile environment for white people. Because the New York Times article I was looking up who was quoted in it, and the only black person who's quoted is Umu's lawyer, who's quoted for two sentences. Like the entire article is white people complaining about how racial justice efforts at Smith College are out of control. And I think the kicker here is that the janitor who called the cops on Umu is literally quoted in the New York Times article saying that he doesn't believe in white privilege. Like, I don't understand how Umu is painted as the bad guy in this story. It's it's ridiculous. Like, it's just bad, bad journalism. Yeah, and I think it's really telling here that, like, we're closing out this sort of chapter in cancel culture history with, you know, a white woman raising a quarter million dollars online and becoming this darling of this like internet cult of personality built up around this idea of cancel culture and a black student sort of tarnished her reputation tarnished. And I think this is a pattern that we see again and again and again with all of this, where certain people get centered in these stories. They're usually white. They're usually cisgender. They're usually straight. They're usually, you know, non-disabled. And, you know, these are the people that end up, profiting off of all of this you know and it sounds like in this case you know jody shaw intentionally went out looking to profit from all of this but it's really unfair to like the ubus of the world who aren't generally members of the media aren't the ones writing these stories aren't the ones deciding how they're framed they're not out there driving millions of eyeballs on twitter but other people end up you know profiting off of all of it So before we sign off, we do have some out-of-context cancellations from our Cancel Me Daddy Discord server. So Cancel Daddy, what have our cancelers asked us to get rid of? So there have been a lot of good requests for cancellation. One of my favorites, the five-day work week. The Cancel Daddy hath spoken. We shall cancel that. The work week is no longer five days. Okay, so it's been canceled, but we don't know how long the work week is now. Uh, Caitlin, I really hope we didn't make it longer for people. Cancelers also wanted to cancel meetings that should be emails and the medical industrial complex for failing patients most in need of their services. Instead, we want universal, culturally competent care for all of us. Makes sense. I think we can handle those. Consider it done. And last but not least, we've been asked to cancel cishet white non-disabled dudes who have somehow come to enough awareness to not take credit for other people's work, but somehow manage to give that credit to other cishet white non-disabled dudes instead of the people who actually deserve the credit. Hmm. That is a good one, and I have a feeling it's going to make some people mad. I feel like the person who asked for this has a story. I want to hear it. I'm excited to hear about that in the Discord. but this is out of context cancellations, so we can't say too, too much. And if you want us to cancel something or someone for you, you can join our Discord server by joining our Patreon. Not only does this give you access to our community, it helps us become a weekly show. Plus, you can get early access to new episodes 
And we have a monthly video call that we are hosting for the first time this week. And if you want to learn about other perks and join our Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash cancelmedaddy. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you're enjoying Cancel Me Daddy, we'd really love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on social media or by leaving a nice short review on Apple Podcasts. We'd also so appreciate it if you told a friend about how much you love the show. That really, really helps get the word out. Cancel Me Daddy comes out every other Thursday. Or if you get early show access through our Patreon, remember that link earlier? You can get it on Wednesday. So we'll see you soon. Today's show was made by me, Oliver Ashkline, and Caitlin Burns. Daniel Peterschmidt made our theme song, and Eden M.W. designed our graphics. We also use music from Poddington Bear. Our show is made possible by the incredible cancelers supporting our work. Especially the first person in our Canceler Hall of Fame, with the great power to cancel all of their enemies, Meg. We so appreciate your support, Meg. Happy canceling!